This is Bethany Hughes for the National Trust. I'm making my way to a home which hides a truly remarkable story. Umpton House was one of the four houses owned by Walter Samuel, the second Lord Bearstead, who, thanks to being heir to the Shell Company oil fortune combined with the family's banking activities, made him one of the richest men in Britain before the Second World War. Um, You can probably hear that I'm crunching up a generous drive. And when Lord Bearstead and his wife bought this estate in 1927, it satisfied all those favourite pre-war pursuits for the well-heeled British. Hunting, house parties, planning a magnificent garden. So far, so quintessentially English. But there is more to this house, and indeed to this family, than meets the eye. Lord Bearstead's bid to rescue Jewish children from Nazi-occupied Europe known today as the Kinder Transport, is one of the most plangent examples of understated, determined philanthropy to emerge from the horrors of the Second World War. And here to talk to me about that story and actually the backstory of this home is Michelle Leake, who's the house manager here at Upton. Hi, Michelle, it's Bethany. Hi, Bethany, good to meet you. Lovely to see you. So I've walked up to the front. This feels very beautiful, rather traditionally English. It's lovely honeyed Haunton stone. There are classical columns opening into the doorway. But it's a house of secrets, this, isn't it? It is a house of secrets. On the surface, it's a house for those country pursuits and for displaying a fantastic art collection. But there are so many clues throughout the house that tells a bit more about Lord Bester's character and that very quiet philanthropy. I don't think visitors are normally allowed to do this. I would love to go in through the front door. Can we do that? Absolutely. So this is a brilliantly handsome entrance hall. I can see stonework and tapestries hanging on the wall. On the floor above me, I can just see some tippy-toes of what looks like a rather splendid oil painting above because art was really his thing, wasn't it? He was a devoted art collector. Absolutely. One of the greatest of the 20th century. There's art throughout the house, but actually there's one particular room that I'd love to show you that's full of treasures. That sounds my kind of place. Lead on. We're making our way across some lovely wide floorboards. Elegant stairs down into a surprisingly light basement. I mean, what, what I'm looking at is a big room filled with what I can tell is exquisite art. But just first, I've got to ask you, why is the room this shape? It's sort of strangely regular for a house of this age. It started off its life as a squash court in the 1920s. And as Lord Bersted's art collection grew... The room was then converted into a picture gallery and the skylights just above us added so that there was a great light to show off the picture collection. There are no ropes here, there are no glass boxes, but I can tell that this is a space packed with world-class art. We've just walked past an El Greco, I can see a Bosch over there. And is this one a Bruegel? It is, yes, it's Peter Bruegel the Elder and it's called Dormition of the Virgin. I mean, it's not, um, it's not the most cheerful of paintings. It's very muted. There's a kind of deathly pallor to it. Your focus is on the virgin who's lying in bed. There's a couple of flickers of light from candles and the fire. But it feels like a strange, haunting kind of a painting. Why was it so important for him to collect this one? It's actually incredibly rare. It's quite out of the usual style for Peter Bruegel the Elder. 
There are only three surviving examples of Bruegel's painted in this style, shades of grey and black and white, which we call grisaille. And I think Lord Bess saw himself as saving it for the nation. He was chairman of the trustees at the National Gallery and allowed them to display it there for quite some time. And then during the Second World War, when their pictures were stored away in Wales for safety, this picture actually went away with the collection of the National Gallery. I'm very glad he sent this one off safely to those Welsh mines where so many works of art were stored. And was it right that when the paintings came back, there was a little bit of a party to welcome them home? There was. We spoke to the son of the butler at the time, and he called it the party to end all parties in 1946. The Henry Hall Orchestra came up from London, and they really celebrated the end of the war and the picture collection coming back. I love the idea of heralding paintings with music. Okay, so we've made our way into the appropriately named Long Gallery. I mean, was this original? Because a Long Gallery has been a feature of English country homes, hasn't it? It has, yes, but this room started life as three separate rooms. And during the renovations in 1927, this Long Gallery was created to showcase the paintings and also the Chelsea porcelain, which you can see in the cabinets. I mean, apart from collecting work that's important in, in art historical terms, do we get a sense of Bairstead's character and his own tastes from the collection? We do. Nearly all of the pictures and the porcelain contain people. He was obviously interested in the human condition and relationships between people and the world around them, and this is very much featured in his art collection, and particularly the Dutch paintings in this room. We've got four pictures, four of the five senses by Jan Steen, and this one just here is Taste. And as you can see, it's a wonderful old gentleman in the picture, very characterful, eating his supper. You really get a sense of the person in the picture. You do, it's very intimate, it's very warm this, but of course you can't get away from the fact that he can only afford to buy all of this because he's got a lot of hard cash to spend, because of course the 20s and 30s, I mean that's the time when the use of oil is expanding massively. Yes, absolutely, and Lord Bersett was a very rich man, but that was balanced with acts of philanthropy as well as spending money on things that he enjoyed. Particularly actually here in this room, because I'm right in saying, aren't I, that he shifted all the workers from the bank who were working in the East End of London and he kind of physically moved the bank into this room. He did. They lived here for the duration of the war and worked in this room. This was the banking hall to keep them safe from the Blitz and they were doing very important war work, so it's important to carry it on here at Upton. Just imagine them here, typing away, surrounded by world-class art, as they did say. Yes, and the oral history testimonies that we have say just that, to be surrounded by these works of art whilst kind of working away was quite something. I suppose what I'm interested in is not just the official story, it's not just the art collector, but what else he did with his life. Absolutely. His own son called him a mystery man, and we're only just starting to uncover some of those secrets that have been hidden away. Can we go and try to find some clues? Yes, that's... So this is the library, which is also Lord Bastard's study. A little bit quirky, there's a balcony just over here so that whilst he's working away, Lord Bester could actually still see his artwork in the picture room just next door. It's a library with a view. Absolutely. Giveaway fact that it's a library, it's floor to ceiling lined with leather bound books. There's a very, very handsome desk that he obviously sat at. I'm glad you brought me here, Michelle, actually, because 
if you're trying to understand a character, it's it's often incredibly helpful to come to the place where he or she worked because it's almost then that you can start to get a feeling for how that person's mind works too. It is a very modest space and the phrase we use to describe Lord Bester's taste is quality without ostentation. I think that's really embodied here. And this footstool has the family motto embroidered on it and that was deeds, not words. Really interesting. I mean, actually, because, of course, it's from the 20s, it's written in Latin, so it says facta non verba underneath this rather splendid heraldic crest. And that really embodies Lord Bester's character. It's actually very moving being in this room because you can just imagine Lord Bersted sitting there observing the events as they're unfolding in Europe in the 1930s. And we know that he was very, very concerned about what was happening in Nazi Germany, and in particular, the plight and the distress of the Jewish population there. Lord Bairstead, who was himself Jewish, formed part of a high-profile group who sought to raise awareness of the plight of European Jews, when many were conveniently ignoring the problem. The Kristallnacht pogrom, meted out by the Nazis in November 1938 against the German Jewish community, catalyzed Bersted and his fellow council members to issue an appeal in the Times newspaper for the people of Britain to save all whom it is possible to rescue, especially the young. Following Kristallnacht, Bersted decided to act. Together with a deputation of leading members of the Jewish community, he met Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain and urged him to admit the entry of unaccompanied Jewish child refugees to Britain, promising that they would take financial and physical responsibility for the arrivals. On the 21st of November, the British government announced in Parliament that it would allow into Britain all of the refugee children whose maintenance could be guaranteed. Bairstead and Anthony de Rothschild secured a huge loan from the Prudential Insurance Company of £365,000, that's more than £40 million in today's money, to cover the costs. And funds were also raised through a non-sectarian charity, the Lord Baldwin Fund for Refugees. And here in the library at Upton House, there's just a small, dun-coloured little book. But, Michelle, this is a, a tiny bit of the jigsaw puzzle that actually speaks volumes about this whole story. We actually found this catalogue, it's an art catalogue, tucked away on a shelf here in the library. It was a sale at Christie's in May 1939 and it was to raise money for the Lord Baldwin Fund for Refugees. And if you take a look, there's a really beautiful painting here, painted by Sir Thomas Lawrence of Madame Sablowski. And it was actually donated by Lord Bairstead to be sold to raise funds for this particular cause. It's significant in two ways, isn't it? Because that date, May 1939, that's a couple of months before the outbreak of the war. So it shows just how prescient he was, where it took a long time for other people to realise the degree of the horrors in Nazi Germany. But also I think the fact that he's putting his money where his mouth is, because we know that he loves his art, and yet he is willing to give it up for this cause that he's championing. Absolutely, but it's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of his generosity and philanthropy. The Kindertransports, as they later became known, began moving children out of Germany in December 1938 and later from Austria, Czechoslovakia and Poland. 
They left from stations in major cities like Berlin, Vienna and later Prague and travelled on via the Hook of Holland to Harwich where the refugees continued their way to Liverpool Street Station and then on to their new lives. By the time of the outbreak of war, a total of 9,354 girls and boys had found refuge in Britain. And the daughter of one of those boys is here with me now in Lord Bearstead's dressing room. It's Lynn Parsons. And Lynn, I understand that your father, Max, was one of those boys that came out on the kinder transport. Yes. He was at boarding school in Germany and almost the entire school, or certainly the boys of that age, were taken out on the kinder transport. You're clutching on your lap. A lot of letters, and I actually can see some of them being open. They've got a censor mark. So these were all written to your father, Max, by his family who'd stayed behind in Germany? Yes, mostly they're written by his mother. There's one letter dated 1940, Mein liebes Matzchen. My darling little Max. Max. And that's his mother. And then underneath, his sister's written something... But all she's written is Herzliche Grüße, Kusa, from Ruth. So he was getting lots of letters from his mother. And do you know what kinds of things she's writing about? Hardly anything. And that's the interesting thing. I don't know whether they knew that their letters were being opened, but all they ever say is, we're well. Father and Ruth have gone to work as usual. But they don't say anything about what's happening in Germany. I think maybe they were frightened by this stage about what would happen to them if their letters were read and they were saying things. When he came over, what was your father allowed to bring with him? He certainly brought masses of things. So I've got lots of photos. That's my father and his twin sister. So, young Max, do you know how old he is in this photo? He was 16, 17 when he came here. I think that must have been just before. It's terrible, though, looking at these photos, that picture of your father and his twin sister, and just no knowledge of what was going to come. No, no. But I was always told that the reason why my grandmother and grandfather wouldn't leave Germany, as all the other siblings had done, was because they said, we're German, and they won't do anything to us, we're German. My grandfather had fought in the First World War, and this is my grandfather's military pass. And if you look there, that's where it details that he was actually fighting on the Battle of the Somme. Yeah, there it is. Yes. Somme und Havre. So I think they genuinely thought that they would be okay. And my father's twin said, I I don't want to leave my parents. So... Do we know what happened to them? My father tried to trace them through the Red Cross and they couldn't be traced. So I can only assume that they perished in the Holocaust. I always hope that... Sorry, I'm start crying. I always hoped that my grandmother and my aunt were together. I don't think my grandfather would have been with them, I think, knowing what I know about what was happening in Germany and concentration camps, 
I would imagine that my grandfather would have been separated from them. Your father would have suffered the same fate, almost certainly. Oh, absolutely. Uh, if he hadn't left Germany. So, yes, he was very, very lucky. And he met my mum. And unbelievably, my mother was born in the Jewish maternity hospital in Tottenham, which actually became the Beersted Memorial Hospital because the Jewish hospital needed repairing and refurbishing and all the rest of it. And he was the major donor. So my mother was born in that hospital. And my father was brought home on the kinder transport, so... We owe them such a debt of gratitude. You owe them your existence. Mm, I do, I do. You know, it is an incredible story. And it must have been awful, actually, being separated from your parents and from your sister. And the, the little notes that my aunt writes to him are clearly very loving. So I think they must have been very close, which, you know, it's tragic. Does it make you feel how critical it is that we all try to do our bit rather than expecting someone else to? Absolutely. And when you think of the tragic events that are going on today, you know, Syrian refugees, what are we doing to help them? When you think back to what was going on in the Second World War, it's not really different. I mean, it may feel different, sitting here in his bedroom it does make you think there is a lesson that we have to learn from all yes. of this yes hearing lynn tell max's story brings home so powerfully how kinder transport transforms not just individual lives but the lives of generations thanks to the work of this quiet visionary philanthropist who put deeds before words. Yes, Bearstead was privileged, one of the new super-rich. And yes, he was fortunate enough to be sufficiently well-connected and well-moneyed to be able to act on his moral instincts. But at least he recognised that it's the pursuit of beauty of spirit, not just beauty of material form, that makes us human. This house and its owner reminds me of one of the poet Wordsworth's great thoughts, that although humanity has many faces, we all share one human heart. For more information about Upton House, including opening times and dates, go to www.nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash Upton House and Gardens. Thank you for listening. Don't forget, this is part of a 10-part series and the other programmes can be found by searching for Bethany Hughes' 10 Places on the National Trust website or subscribe through your favourite podcast app. I'm Bethany Hughes. This podcast was commissioned by Ivo Dorney and was produced by Melissa Fitzgerald. It was a Blakeway production for the National Trust. I'm Alan Power and I've been exploring the secret history of some of the nation's most breathtaking gardens in the National Trust Gardens podcast. Join me as I explore Sissinghurst Castle Garden in Kent. I'll be discovering how this haunting and world-famous garden was born out of a faded Tudor manor when a famous poet and her diplomat husband made it their home. I can't wait to share it with you, so search for National Trust Gardens on iTunes or your favourite podcast app.